So back in October, we had the great Virgil Vasquez on the podcast, right-hand pitcher for the Gauchos, pitched at Santa Barbara High for the Dons, and is currently a minor league pitching coach with the Minnesota Twins organization. And he's also the founder of, or co-founder, I should say, of Revolution Throwing, and they have some great products on their website, revolutionthrowing.com. They have the perfect throw and the flatty, which is a, a portable, foldable home plate that you can hook on your backpack or whatever. And they also just released, as he mentioned on the podcast back in October, something that was in the works, their hot sauce brand, Wild Pitch Hot Sauce. Check it out on revolutionthrowing.com. You can get a bottle of Wild Pitch Hot Sauce for under 10 bucks. Uh, and might as well get a perfect throw and a flatty to go with it. So I want to thank Rojo Vasquez for uh, coming on the pod, of course, and um, that will be the presenting sponsor for this week's podcast, Wild Pitch Hot Sauce, presenting the Gauchanon podcast this week. So this week we got Emma Hoffman, assistant athletic trainer for the Gauchos, and she is the team athletic trainer for baseball. Uh, she has been with UCSB since the summer of 2019, and she's just she ever since she arrived she's been a great addition and was helping the guys along the way in that weird summer of 2020 and she's been with the gouches every step of the way this year as we are approaching uh first pitch on the 2021 season so had a great interview with emma talking about injury prevention talking about her career as an athletic trainer uh originally from kansas moving her way through uh tcu undergrad and now finally being uh, an assistant athletic trainer, moving way up the ladder. So uh, a fun interview and an important side of college athletics and college baseball specifically is uh, having a quality athletic trainer in your dugout and tending to the players uh, whenever they need it. So that's uh, our podcast today. Emma Hoffman presented by Wild Pitch Hot Sauce. Let's get to Emma. It's one of the most beautiful views of any campus in America, the Pacific Ocean crashing against the shores of UC Santa Barbara every morning, noon, and night. There's the one strike pitching. Mitchell belts this to deep left. Cabrera is going to watch it fly. He strikes out the side for the second consecutive inning. And Armani belts it to deep center. Gauchos are going to Omaha. Can you believe it? Here's the 0-2 pitch. And a curveball is swung on him. And the score is due. Here comes Mitchell. He's going to score. And the Gauchos are the 2019 champions of the Midwest. All right. Today on the Gauch 9 podcast, we have our first athletic trainer who is joining the pod. First time we've talked to a trainer. She hails from Overland Park, Kansas. She graduated from Texas Christian University, got her master's from Old Dominion, and was a graduate assistant at William & Mary. She comes to UCSB via TCU. Um, she's been with the Gauchos since July of 2019. Uh, she's handling women's volleyball and the baseball team. She's been great for, for the boys in blue and gold for the last year plus. So please welcome to the Gaucho 9 podcast, Emma Hoffman. Emma, what's happening? You know, just enjoying a rainy day in Santa Barbara. It's kind of kind of gross outside, so I'm happy to have a heater here. Well, you weren't at the field today, which it was underwater. 
<laughs> Fortunately, uh, have you seen have you seen Caesar when it's when it's at its finest underwater? I have not. Only in pictures. I uh, I saw that what it was doing outside, and I was not planning on coming by the field today because I didn't think it was going to be an exciting day out there at the ballpark. <laughs> well, we don't have a training room at at the ballpark, so whenever you do come to the field, you get to ride in one of the golf carts, which is pretty cool. But yeah, if if I were you, yeah. I I we weren't there very long. We got we got washed out pretty quick. So <laughs> yeah, it it seemed like it. I and I didn't want to you know, have a rainy golf cart ride out there and rainy golf cart ride back. It didn't seem our golf carts don't have any, uh, any coating or like protection on them. So be a wet, <laughs> wet trip. Okay. So what's with the, uh, what's with the titles? Cause if you look at Emma Hoffman on the, on the website in the bio, it says Emma Hoffman, ATC, MSTA, LAT, NATA, FWATA. Like, is that, is, are you a better trainer the more acronyms you have? Are there funny acronyms for those? Or like, um, what, what's with the titles? Not necessarily. The uh, the titles, so the MSAT is my master's degree, master's degree in athletic training specifically. And then the ATC is my national certification. And the LAT means that I'm licensed. I still hold a license um, in Texas and Virginia and Colorado because that's where my family is. So just as an opportunity to go, you know, and if I happen to be covering something in one of those states, you know, to make a little extra money during the summer or whenever I'm not here working, then I can then I can do that. California does not require a license uh, or any kind of registration, which is one of, it's the only state in the country that doesn't. And that's, it's a little bit strange. That is odd considering that I went through buying a piece of property and Californian is like the most there's it's it's just the most uh, I can't remember the term uh, there's lots of paperwork involved there's lots of <laughs> long 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 things that you have to sign I'm surprised that you don't have to be licensed in California to be an athletic trainer it's, it's very good. surprising it's something that well yeah athletic trainers have been trying to work on that because it you know if we have a license in a particular state it kind of raises our level of not necessarily raise our level of practice, but our level of recognition, recognition, um, which is a good thing for the profession. So we're, it's a work in progress. So if you're a head athletic trainer, like Leroy, mm -hmm. what other certifications do you need? Or do you just need, um, mostly experience like the, the, you know, ATC certification is the main one. And then after that, it's just whatever experience you want. Some other people, um, have, you know, strength and conditioning ex, uh, certification or a... Um, is that CSCS? Yeah, that's okay. the one. And there's one called CES, which is Certified uh, Exercise Specialist, I believe. I don't hold that one, um, but some athletic trainers do. So it's kind of about what you're interested in, what other skill set you might want to add to whatever you've already learned in school. So what's, what's NATA or FWATA? Um, those are the like member organizations. So the NATA is the National Athletic Trainers Association, and FWATA is the Far West Athletic Trainers or, um, Association. So one's national, obviously, and then one's our district that California and Hawaii and Washington, Oregon belong to. I believe. Do you guys have conventions? FWATA. Do you guys like yeah. go, to, go to Vegas and and stay in a hotel and have conventions? Yeah, in uh, 2019, the NATA convention was in Vegas, actually. Oh. And it was pretty cool. And so, 
we all, you know, tons of athletic trainers all come to Vegas and there's like, a, you know, there are tons of education sessions. There's like a, a fair essentially where there's, it's an expo, I guess is the better term for it, where all kinds of, you know, Gatorade sets up a whole setup and all of the taping companies set up a whole thing and just, you know, show off their new products and it's pretty cool and lots of fun stuff. Do you guys like see who can wrap a foot the best or share, <laughs> share different methods or like if you have a stress fracture, you wrap it this way, or if it's a high ankle sprain, you wrap it this way. Do you have like special names for the wraps? Like they do for like tying a tie, like a half Windsor. There, like there are a ton of fancy different names. The The main two for a, for taping an ankle is there's an open basket weave and a closed basket weave. Most everybody does the closed basket weave, but there's, you know, if you have like a, arch kind of issue there's like a teardrop pattern you can tape in all kinds of all kinds of fancy stuff <laughs> we don't have we don't have competitions at, at nata though of who can tape an ankle fastest <laughs> fastest taper in the west and mahasana that doesn't exist <laughs> darn it goal that's a goal <laughs> all right well so I'm, I'm thinking about which way to go on this interview i kind of want to get the serious stuff out of the way first because oh. let's let's face it like COVID has been a challenge for everybody from college athletics to the local hardware store. Like it's been hard and we shut down all sports in March. Who was playing in March? It was softball. It was baseball. Mm -hmm. Was it water polo or I volleyball? I one of the water polos. Okay. And men's volleyball was still going. Yeah. And we didn't have any fall sports. So there was no men's and women's soccer. There was no women's volleyball, who's one, who's one of your teams. So we did get back to men's and women's basketball, which started in November. So there's mm -hmm. that long gap in between when the gauchos were on the field and when they were off the field. Off the field. So we kind of, I just kind of want to ask you and get a breakdown of some of the things that it took and as far as the training staff goes to getting teams back on the field. Cause baseball practiced in fall. We were back on the field in October and a handful of other sports have been doing stuff. We've been doing lifting outdoors. The training room has been open. There's new protocols. So I, I've got some questions to mix in, but maybe just give a general uh, idea for, for the folks listening as to what it's, what it's taken to get uh, Gaucho athletics back on the field. Yeah, it has taken a lot and specifically generally a lot of meetings and a lot of spreadsheets we have a spreadsheet for everything oh my gosh it's a lot my my the rest of my staff has been amazing and fantastic and honestly we couldn't you know jackson really has taken the lead on most of the covid stuff and he's done an amazing job everybody else pitching in across the board you know from the rest of my staff to our administrators and kelly and just as a shout out like it's, it wouldn't have been ha happening without everybody, you know, putting a hundred percent in, but, um, the protocols was the biggest thing. And I think one of the biggest challenges because, you know, we spent most of the summer and most of us, you know, May, April, really trying to figure out, you know, are we going to go back next week? Are we going to go back in a month? Are we going to go back in July? And, you know, those were all markers at one point and then they all, you know, continue to push back. And I don't think we really got back, you know, into starting testing and back into the office until about late August, I think. Um, and, you know, it just, 
trying to make a plan for how we're going to test when we don't know how we're going to test. And so the target was always, always moving. And there was a lot of unanswered questions and every meeting was asking a whole bunch of questions that we didn't have the answers to, but it really came down to, you know, putting a plan into place for how we're going to, you know, protect our student athletes, what kind of protocols we need in terms of sanitation, in terms of entrances and exits and how we're going to, when are we going to take their temperature? When are we going to clear them for practice? How can we do that? What if they get COVID? Just a million questions that we kind of just started asking and putting, you know, our best guesses and answers down on paper. And if we didn't have an answer, we reached out to our team physicians over at Student Health, who've been awesome and helping us with all kinds of these things and, and getting answers from other institutions and guidance from county and all kinds of different places. Yeah, so in those meetings, I'm assuming that they are, they are representatives of the athletic department, campus, the university abroad, so like the, the UC in general, mm-hmm. and then you got camp, uh, county and probably state representatives all in those meetings uh lots of lots of heads lots of opinions and then just lots of stuff to sort through Mm -hmm. i just i i want to ask what the what's the relationship between uh campus and athletic department because there's student health Mm -hmm. and the testing now i believe goes through student health is that correct or is that Um there's a lab i'm probably muddying the the question here let's let's just start with uh, the relationship between athletic department and campus um that is kind of something that i'm i'm not privy to those like higher up meetings because i'm i'm not you know in charge of our athletic training department unfortunately <laughs> and kind of fortunately that seems like a lot of pressure but um kelly barsky for sure does an amazing job liaising between us and campus and she really is able to distill, you know, the questions that campus has and the concerns that they have and bring it back to us and Dr. Hughes, our main team physician of, you know, the campus concerns and questions and things and how it then brings it to us. And, and we talk about how we can meet those demands or answer those questions or those kinds of things. But the relationship, you know, has been working and it, and it has to work for us to be able to do, you know, have athletics happening on campus when there's a surge in cases and we're, we're trying to battle all of that stuff. So I'll tell you as a, as a member of one of the teams, like I, I hadn't gotten tested until we came back in the fall. I, I hadn't feel, felt a need to, like I, I didn't feel sick or anything. And, and the testing was kind of a, a stressful endeavor just when I thought about it, just because I hadn't, hadn't done it before. Mm-hmm. And you guys made it extremely easy because it, you gave a schedule, you go in, you take the test, you're done. It takes five minutes. And mm-hmm. like the testing procedure, as far as each individual on the team goes, uh, not being on the training staff, it <laughs> made it extremely simple. Like you show up at this time, you, you fill out your, your survey, mm-hmm. you get your temperature checked, and then you stick a, a nozzle in your mouth or a, uh, a Q-tip in your mouth or in your nose, and then off you go. So it's easy from that perspective, but probably extremely challenging from the other side. So you've got like Hazel's in there checking people in on computers. Yeah, there wasn't, there weren't computers at the start that was kind of added later on. Yeah, uh, we got, we got fancier as we went <laughs> more high tech. And the, and we have an added benefit because there is a lab on campus. Mm-hmm. So that makes so you get same day results. 
Uh, I'm sure it makes processing these spreadsheets uh, a lot easier where you <laughs> you can funnel the students in, uh, schedule out which days are coming in, and then you get your test results mostly the day of. There's been a couple of hiccups, but for the most right. part, it's been fairly smooth. Yeah. We, yes, the there's definitely a spreadsheet for testing. Each day is its own tab. and We have to coordinate, you know, what teams are going to test on what day, how many we can people we can test on that day, because we kind of have a cap. And the cap has continued to increase. Today, we did 134 tests, whereas at one point in the fall, we weren't allowed to do more than like 60. So we've more than doubled what we can do, and we can still do it in two hours. So we have them everybody cruising through, and it's pretty... It's pretty uh, finely tuned machine at this point. It's, it's kind of nice. Today was an easy day. Easy day, 134. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what about the, uh, the training room? Because when teams are practicing, the, you still got to come in, get treatment. There's, mm -hmm. There are athletes that are nursing injuries or working on rehab, uh, some of the day-to-day -day stuff. How has training room protocols changed? I'm sure there were rules in place because you, of course you can't have a whole team rolling through saying I, I need my, my shoulders rubbed out, you know, all at the same time. There are spreadsheets for that, that were already in place. I'm sure where you can yes. schedule a time, but how has, how has uh, COVID shifted how you know, athletes can come into the training room for treatment? Yeah, that, um, that definitely has been a change, especially because we kind of have a, a limit on how many people we can have within our facility at a time. It's kind of capped around 10 or 12 so that each athletic trainer can be working with one other person at a time, um, which is severely restricted. You know, you can't have a whole team come through because we have a team of 48 guys and I can't see all of them at once. <laughs> That's definitely not allowed. But um, so they go through and they sign up for an appointment time with me and it's they're blocked out a little bit longer so I can spend more time working on an athlete, which is super nice because then they get all the care, they can get treatment and rehab kind of at the same time. Whereas before, maybe I was trying to see, you know, more guys than, um, than I am now. And so it's been, it's been actually kind of nice getting to spend more time with guys, but COVID and especially starting in, you know, May and April when everybody went home and we still had a, decent number of, of injured athletes. And I was having to send, you know, rehab programs to every guy who needed anything. Cause now they're at home and I'm, you know, quarantined in my apartment and I can't put my hands on anybody to work on, you know, or evaluate their shoulder or anything like that. Um, so there's a lot more of sending rehab programs and I'll check with checking with them you know, still consistently, but I don't have to see them every single day because I can trust that they're doing their exercises that I need to, or, you know, if they're not getting better, then I know that they're not doing the exercises that they need to be. So it's been, it's definitely been challenging and been different than, than, you know, normal for an athletic trainer, but it's, I think it, it's working. It's working. Okay. So when they're in there mm -hmm. are in the training room, physically in the training room, are you still, are you restricted from any of the previous stuff that you're able to do, you're still able to do all of the normal treatments that you had done before. Yeah. So the the main difference is when they come in, they have to we have to take their temperature. They we need to make sure that they're okay to be on campus. They're not feeling sick. Um, and then they have to wear their mask the whole time, which is you know just normal for everybody now. But no, I can still do um, every other treatment modality that I could ever want to do. Um, 
you know, anything from instrument assisted soft tissue massage to myofascial decompression, which is cupping as most everybody knows it, you know, Michael Phelps with all of the octopus, you know, looks like he got attacked by an octopus, those pictures, um, electrical stimulation, massage, stretching, any kind of anything, I'm still able to do all of that, which is great because I like and appreciate that most of the hands-on modalities and things like that, not just hooking somebody up to the STEM unit and letting them hang out for 15, 20 minutes. That's not going to, you know, it makes them feel good while they're doing it, but it's not going to last, you know, really on the field. So anything I can do that, you know, helps create a lasting effect and give them tools like rehab to strengthen, you know, whatever structures they need to strengthen is, is kind of the way I like to, like to interact with my athletes. Okay. So we got the serious stuff out of the way. So that's good. Cool. <laughs> so your primary sports women's volleyball uh, and baseball, but you've also worked with football, soccer, beach volleyball, and mm -hmm. track and field. There's probably some others, but those were the, the five that I picked out. Yeah. So main, main question, and I wanna talk some injury prevention stuff, but are you paired with baseball and women's volleyball because there are similar similar movements like you like volleyballers they're, they're swinging their arm they're they're hitting they're mm -hmm. bumping spiking baseball players are throwing uh and there's lots of rotational stuff maybe not as much jumping in baseball but there's a lot of similar stuff with the arm so is is that a common uh pair of of sports that trainers would have do you think volleyball um, and baseball not really that i've noticed but the more i think about it the more sense it makes um, especially, you know, I think it's more, we were paired or it was paired that way for me because once a fall sport, once a spring sport, and it kind of just fell like that. Um, but the more I think about, you know, volleyball athletes and their serve or their swing and that kind of thing, the more similar it is to, um, baseball athletes. And I actually talked about injury prevention took the same last year when I had more time and not COVID, uh, was able to take the same kind of, um, range of motion measurement spread on both teams. And was it was very interesting to compare that volleyball athletes have similar range of motion um, adaptations as baseball pitchers and that they have more external rotation at their shoulder and a little bit less internal rotation. And I was like, this is more similar than I thought. And this is pretty cool. Cause I hadn't really worked a ton of um, either beach or indoor volleyball. I've worked, you know, about a season of each and so I had, you know, some experience with that coming in, but I definitely had more experience with baseball. So um, it's cool to, to see more similarities in a sport that I don't have experience with, you know, compared to one that I'm more familiar with. Beach volleyball. Is there, is there a big difference between working on or injuries that occur in beach volleyball players versus indoor volleyball players? Um, it's not really that I had seen like the injuries are relatively the same. It's just a different demand on the body because, you know, it's only pairs versus sixes. And so there are different demands for each sport, which is a little bit interesting, a little bit different. The level of fitness is different, but other than that, the injuries are relatively the same still, you know, shoulder stuff, ankles, rolled ankles, all that kind of thing. Okay. Makes sense. So you, so you've been baseball probably since you, you started this, this pursuit of athletic training, uh, we'll, we'll bring it up real quick. So you were at TCU for undergrad and then you were working there prior to coming to UCSB. And as mm -hmm. it just so happens, you were also in Omaha in 2016 while the Gauchos were there. 
I was. And that real, you know, taking the job here and then looking across my room, I have a poster from the College World Series in 2016 and the UCSB logo is on it. And when I took this position and knew that I was going to come here, I looked at that and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I didn't realize. Like, and then I was like, I'm going to go to UCSB. And I was like, this has been on my wall for four years. This is nuts. So it's kind of, kind of, uh, kind of interesting for sure. What what are your what are some of your memories from that from that trip? I'm assuming it's the only time that you were in Omaha, even though TCU had been there a few times. That was the only time I went with the team that year. I went the following year just to watch a game, just because I couldn't road trip with the um, road trip over there. But my memories from 2016, it was kind of unreal. I got to be on the field with the team when they did the opening you know, ceremony thing and walk out from center field and sit on the field near home plate. And that was wild. And they had, you know, an artist, like somebody sing or something like that. And I think there were fireworks and just like being in that environment, being in Omaha where everybody just loves college baseball was just awesome. Like, it, you know, it was like, it's the best. And that's why I want to go back and hopefully we can, you know, make a run at that and it'd be great. But yeah, that that atmosphere is absolutely wild. That's all. That's the most thing I remember from it. Okay. Yeah. Opening ceremonies were pretty cool. They. That was. I did not expect that. When I was there, it totally blew me away. I was like, yeah, it'll probably be a little parade, and there'll be some people watching, and then it's you know, there's twenty thousand people there, watching yes. fireworks. It was uh, ex ambassadors that was performing. Mm, that's right. There was parachuters. It was nuts. It was. It was totally nuts. It was. Yeah absolutely wild all, all everything, for everything was huge <laughs> all for the gauchos in the in the horn frogs <laughs> yes uh okay in, injury prevention so what are what are some strategies that you try to employ with uh let's let's just stick with specifically baseball mm-hmm. what are some strategies that you try and employ for for each of the athletes to to keep them healthy while they're practicing or while it's in season yeah um, one of the main things that I like to look at, and I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to, you know, like, please no- indulge, that- indulge. Okay. Us. <laughs> uh, coming back. So I'll give a little bit of like a, you know, brief, my, the last year that I was at TCU before coming here was actually in a residency program, which kind of focused on, I got to be with the baseball team at TCU some, but I also was doing some more rehab type you know, emphasis, education emphasis, but along with that was some, a lot of research. And so um, I got to be around some super smart people who were into reading some super great papers and that kind of thing. And so um, one of the main things I look at with the baseball team is their shoulder range of motion. And because there are some things within that, that can be kind of a red flag or either protective, you know, for injury. So being able to take those measurements, which is a little bit time consuming, but overall, you know, is going to help me give me more information for the future of to, to say like whether or not, you know, they have enough range of motion, or maybe they could have more range of motion, or maybe they have too much external and not enough internal rotation, you know, that kind of thing. So being able to look at those numbers and then, you know, write it down for each individual athlete and go, th- or especially our pitchers, that's kind of mostly what I looked at um, and go through all of their numbers and say, you know, you fall into this category of needing X 
warm motion or you're in this other category and kind of making it that way and then sending them all different either stretches or exercises or whatever kind of thing that then they could work on every day to, to kind of help get more motion and, and protect their shoulder better and, or strengthen their shoulder better and that kind of thing. So what about, so a lot of legs are involved as well, especially yeah. with, with pitching and, and when you're rotating and hitting, you're, you're using your legs. What kind of focus do you give on lower half? Mm-hmm. Um, lower half is super important. Just like you're saying, like you can't pitch if you don't, you know, use your legs. If you don't use your legs very well, then you're going to end up with some kind of injury somewhere else down the line. Um, we have, I look at their hip motion as well. And then there's another tool that I have, um, that kind of assesses their balance and like single leg stability. And so I can, you know, incorporate those things too, to say, well, you know, your core might be weak or your, you know, left leg is your stride leg is weaker than your, you know, stance leg or something like that. And be like, you need to do all of your exercises on one leg, or you really need to do these other things or, you know. There's a, there's a whole battery of tests that I can throw at somebody and then a whole battery more of exercises that I could send them. But most of the time they're responsible for doing that. You know, if they have an ongoing injury, they can come in and do it with me. But if it's something that they're working for maintenance or just trying to improve, you know, their range of motion or whatever they have or their stability, then they do most of that at the field and can incorporate that into their pre-throw band routine that is mostly the same for everybody, but if it's something that I identify, you know, you probably need X, Y, or Z, then they can add X, Y, or Z to their, to their routine. So is there a, a coordinated effort between you or the training room and Luke? So Luke story, our great uh, director of sports performance mm-hmm. and his workout plan that they make for each athlete. Cause he, he pretty much tailor makes each program for, for each guy or, or mm-hmm. small groups or individually. Is there uh, rehab stuff or that range of motion data, does that go into what he is making for those guys? Yeah, I definitely share that information with Luke. And if I see something, you know, or there are a handful of guys that I'm especially worried about and want them to do something specific with him in the weight room, we definitely talk about that. Um, we haven't had a ton of time to talk about that, unfortunately, because of COVID and, you know, there's, there are more time constraints now than there were um, last season when the season got short and Luke was just getting started. So that's something that we're definitely going to work on more in the future is that coordinated effort and trying to fine tune that for our guys so that we have super strong humans out on the baseball field. Okay. So in the, in a general, in, your, in all of your experience on the field, what are some of the most common injuries that you see with baseball players? Um, most common, the, probably the biggest ones are everybody knows about like UCL tears, elbow, you know, Tommy John surgery, that kind of thing. Um, seen and worked on rehabbed a a lot of those in my short experience, unfortunately. Um, and then otherwise, you know, some rotator cuff tendonitis or some shoulder, like anterior shoulder impingement or bicep tendonitis are the most common ones probably along with usually get one or two hamstring strains or calf strains a year. Some not as frequently lower extremity injuries, but definitely happens. And baseball players are not immune just because they throw things more than they run. So you, those are, those are injuries. So for people listening at home, those are injuries. So like you have something like that, you are missing time where you can't practice or you can't play. Right. Uh, what about, um, what about just, 
regular like nicks or something that might keep a guy from from hitting for a day or, or he has to tone it back a little bit or he's asked to go on each day and get treatment on it, but he can still play. Like what are some, some common things uh, as that on that front? Yeah. More for those, it's more like um, either they have like flexor pronator kind of muscular, not necessarily a strain, but some kind of, or tendonitis, but like irritation, I guess would be the best word. Whereas those, the muscles in your forearm a little bit flared up and not feeling the greatest when you throw your curveball or those kinds of things. Um, and then the other biggest one is probably um, scapular dyskinesis, where you have some kind of asymmetry between how your scapula move from your throwing shoulder to your non-throwing shoulder, which clinicians typically use as your baseline or default. Your non-throwing shoulder is kind of just how your body is versus your throwing shoulder has all kinds of crazy adaptations, which are super interesting. Um, and scapular dyskinesis is usually just a muscle imbalance. One muscle is working harder than another one and muscles don't really like it when, you know, they're working harder than they need to be. So then they get mad and then your shoulder kind of doesn't feel that great. And then you have to come see me for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, so we've had, Gauchos have had some great trainers in the past and I've had, in my position, I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with him on the road uh, or or at the field. I mean, like you and I, we 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 have downtime while teams are practicing, and so we hash it out in the dugout or whatever. And specifically, Andrew Shibata, bless his heart, but he would always show me these nasty injuries that would come up like a friend of his would show him a picture of look look what happened at this basketball game the other day, and he'd show me like oh come on. I don't need to see it, <laughs> but he, he had this, this fix for, for, for nasty injuries. And he, obviously we, we all kidding aside, we never want to see gruesome injuries. We we just don't want to see it. Everyone would be better to not see it, but in reality, it, it does happen. It does happen. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any nasty injuries specifically that you can remember? Nothing too nasty. I do remember in the middle of a football game, one, uh, I think he was cornerback or safety. He comes running off the field and he's holding out his arm, like, like a zombie, just one arm. And he's running as fast as he can. And his pinky is like sideways. Mm. And like, I can't see this until he's maybe like, you know, a couple yards in front of me. And I'm like, Ooh, that don't look that great. And so I, I put it back in. I'm like, we have to take you. We have to evaluate you. He just like sprints back onto the field and, and that was it. And I was like, this kid had a dislocated finger. I'm like on the radio with my boss. And he's like, where is he? I was like, he's on the field. <laughs> he ran away. Um, so those ones, you know, they look really bad and they don't feel really good in the moment. But, you know, as soon as you put it back in, the same as I've seen a, a dislocated kneecap, which that looks pretty nasty. But as soon as you put it back in, you know, they uh, they do pretty well and they it's like it never happened. It's so a, di a dislocation, I've... I knock on wood i have i have never broken a bone i have not dislocated a joint or anything a, a dislocation like it it freaks me out thinking about it like it's it's literally out of its socket but it means so there's no there's no tears or anything it's, um, it's displaced it de yeah it depends on the severity so that you have ligaments right that hold every all the bones together so every joint has ligaments surrounding it and sometimes you can just have stretched those ligaments out and there's no tear, but especially depending on, on larger joints, then, you know, like 
shoulders depending, but hips, you know, if you dislocate a hip, something is very wrong in your hip and that's not going to just go back in and be fine. Fingers yeah. Yeah. usually do pretty well. Kneecaps do well because kneecaps are different. They're embedded within a tendon and there are no ligaments attached to your kneecap specifically within that's your knee. So yes. Yeah. Kneecaps are weird. So that's why those are the easiest ones to reduce because you just kind of pop back in and all good. It's a dislocated shoulder. So say you go for like a diving catch in the outfield, you land on your shoulder, it, it pops out. Is there like a certain length of time that it can be out and then you have damage? Like I'm, I'm, it's probably better to put it back in faster rather than, than slower, right? The, so quicker, the quicker you can get it back in, the better. Um, but if you can't reduce it after a couple tries and trying to kind of super relax and just get a little bit of weight in his hand it's you know usually they go back in by themselves but the longer you have it out the more likelihood you have for like um like nerve and vascular damage because now you have you know the head of your humerus in a different position and this could be impinging on you know super important structures that give you feeling in your hand or blood supply to your hand and if you go without that too long then yeah you'll get you can have some unfortunate consequences do you dig into any of the like science and anatomy of like how to spike a volleyball or why certain athletes can jump higher or why Michael McGreevy has a 96 mile an hour fastball, just like the, the mechanics of things. Like, do you dive into any of that stuff? A little bit. I do. I really enjoy looking at that stuff. And that's one of the things that I was lucky enough to see in residency, we had a 3D motion capture system in both of the clinics that I worked in. So one was for lower extremity and one was for upper extremity. And we would have guys, pitchers come in specifically and we put a mound in our lab area, motion capture area, and put all little dots on him and watch him pitch. And then we could sit at this computer and break down his pitching motion which I didn't, I didn't get to do a ton of, but my, one of my classmates did, and I got to see some of his work and it's, it's extremely interesting to me. And I like to dive into it when I have the time to, and just, you know, understand the requirements on a person's body. And, and one of the amazing things about baseball is that the longer you pitch, the more adaptation you have to pitching and the bone in your, mm. in the, in your upper arm actually twists differently than it naturally does. It back, basically twists backwards so that you have adapted to having more external rotation, which is why Michael McGreevy, not that he can throw, not because he can throw 96 miles an hour, but it helps him throw that. And it's because he's pitched for a million years and not a million. I wish he was, that'd be crazy. But um, he has an extreme amount of external rotation. If you ask him or put him on a table and his arm goes like, I can't even do it because he just has an extreme amount of motion and that's a natural adaptation of his to pitching. Yeah. Natural adaptation. That's a, it's a, it's a cool term because in my fandom of, of being a sports fan uh, and, and listening and watching and reading things and you hear these like stories about these great athletes and you've never seen them in person. Say it take, for example, like, uh, Okay, I'm, I'm, all I can think of is basketball references. Okay, base, here's a baseball one. I'll, I'll, give, I'll provide two here. Natural adaptation. So Pedro Martinez, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. He won, I don't know how many Cy Youngs in a row. He had a super low ERA that one year. Like, 
Look him up. If you don't know who Pedro is, shame on you. He had exceptionally long fingers. Really long fingers. So he had this changeup that was so nasty, no one could hit it, and it's because he had these long fingers, and the ball would stay on his finger just a fraction of a second longer. And he threw it such so that it was so deceptive uh, that it was that hard to hit. But he had a natural adaptation that gave him that advantage. So my, my other example was Kawhi Leonard, who's a great basketball player. His hands are enormous. So someone like who had never seen him play before, he was like a journalist, uh, interviewed him at the end of the game, and then shook his hand at the end of the interview. And that's what he led in the story with was that his hand was so big. Like, no wonder he is so good at deflecting passes or defending or the the ball sticks to his hand a certain way. It's because his 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 hand is just so it's so useful in his line of work. So those things being said, like do you read about or look for certain natural adaptations or find it in your research where like, okay, this guy's good at this because he's got all this, all this room in his shoulder or he has, because he's tall and lanky, he can do this or whatever. Are there certain like physical natural adaptations that you've come across in your work that give athletes advantages? None that I can say like specifically, like this is the hallmark of, you know, a throw 96 miles an hour. And even if I did know that, I don't, I don't know if I would share that. That seems like a, a pretty solid trade secret over here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's mostly about how well you can use what you have. And if you have, you know, a crazy amount of range of motion, you have to have the amount of same amount of strength basically to control that. Because if you just have motion that flops around, you can't control it, then you're still not going to throw 96 miles an hour, you know? Um, so it's, maximizing you know the the best way to do it is to maximize what you've got and some for some people that's going to you know lead to amazing things and for some people maybe not and it's just kind of the luck of the draw which is that's tough well it is amazing at this level the amount of instruction that these these kids these athletes get from their on-field instruction with their coach and staff and their the instruction in the training room and their instruction in the weight room i mean it's it's pretty spectacular. All of the, all of the things that go into molding our players into the great athletes that they are. And it's awesome having a trainer on the pod. This, this is great. Like <laughs> digging into this, this nitty gritty. Um, so like, like most endeavors in sports, it's like a life commitment. I've had, I've had interviews uh, on prior podcasts and I call them uh, baseball lifers. Mm-hmm. It's like they're, you know, you've been, We've had people who have been in the game for 40, 50 plus years. Like you're a baseball lifer. So you started your athletic training when you started college, I'm assuming, that pursuit Mm -hmm. when you're an undergrad. When did you decide that you wanted to get into this profession? Is there a reason? Is there, what's what's, uh, deep down the the reason why you want to be an athletic trainer? Um, It's not your your run of the mill. Not my run of the mill. I have it's, like no, a, it's not the run of the mill type job. It's not nine to five. No way. It's not. Oh yeah, it's very much not. I uh, so I played sports in in high school and I played softball probably for the longest. So I've always been kind of and my my family like my dad you know kind of raised me to love baseball and that's always been my favorite sport and and 
but I knew that I wasn't, you know, I was going to, I wasn't going to play in college and I wanted to do something where I could still be around sports and help people. And so in high school, I actually had the opportunity to take a sports medicine class um, that was taught by an athletic trainer. I was like, this is pretty cool. I think this is what I want to do. So I found that TCU had an athletic training program that I could be, you know, hands-on around sports, around athletes for all four years, which was different than a lot of other programs of schools that I was looking at. And uh, it just ended up being the perfect place and it was awesome. And so I worked, um, the first year I worked baseball was in 2016. And then I've worked baseball ever since and just, you know, kind of found that this is what I really like. And I love being around, you know, the athletes are all great. I love being outside. That was kind of one of my prerequisites for a job is I didn't want to sit inside of the desk all day. And, uh, which, uh, you kind of do right now. I, right now I do. <laughs> Right now I do. I don't get to be out of the field as much as I want to. In the in the fall at one point, I was sitting at the field and uh, Coach Checkets came over. He's like, is this baseball therapy time? I was like, yes, it absolutely is. Just being at the field, you know, listening to all the sounds of everything happening, getting to see, you know, the athletes that I have worked on be doing the things that, you know, now they've had surgery six months ago and now they're doing that throwing program and that's the most exciting thing to see. And so, and I think that's partly why I do it too, is that it is not run of the mill. I am there from all hours of the day. I got into work at seven 30 this morning and if practice was going to go, how practice was supposed to go, I would have been there till, you know, six 30 or something like that at night. And, but you gotta love it. And it's all about seeing the athletes, succeed and especially the ones that I spend more time with and and guys that have had surgery and those kinds of things going from like one of the worst days of their lives when they get their MRIs back and it says you have you know x tear in your shoulder or whatever and then getting them you know getting to see them finish their throwing program and you know throw 99 miles an hour in a scrimmage in the fall is pretty pretty phenomenal so that was Chris Troy you're referring to it was yes. So you probably you probably were there from start to finish because he that was that mm -hmm. in in summer of nineteen when he had his his Tommy John surgery. It was so I I wasn't there for the first month or two of his um, right after surgery, um, but when he came back in the fall, I worked with him a lot, and he was he was still seeing I think a, a physical therapist off campus for most of his rehab, but. I saw him at least once a week, if not more. And so, yeah, long time. And we'll, and we'll, we're hoping we're waiting to see him uh, on the mountain, a real game in spring 2021, which is coming up soon. So is there a, is there a specific success story that you can remember where there was someone who maybe was on the fringe of like hanging it up because of an injury and, something inspired them to come back and you were there with them every step of the way and now they've gone on to more success um, maybe not on the fringe of hanging it up but uh one athlete that i worked with in residency me and and one of the students that i was kind of mentoring at the time got to do 98 percent of his rehab together and, and we worked on that and it was both you know an educational moment me teaching somebody else how to do what I do 
and you know she had already gotten the basics of everything she was a senior and she was going to go off to grad school so it was kind of that a little bit of a pass the torch moment to not be too cheesy but uh you know he did really well and now I think is pitching maybe at Oregon or something like that and so he's you know gotten to a place where he's throwing out 100 percent and I'm super pumped for him and we might play Oregon this year so it'll be exciting that's right we might play Oregon, the Ducks. Uh, we, yeah, you, you mentioned it in there. It was it, it was in there. The because uh, I was I was going to prompt it at some point, but the the cyclical nature of of the game. I, it's a theme that I bring up a lot on the podcast, and you see it in the training room, where there's a guy healthy, gets hurt, you rehab back to 100 percent, and then you're full go. Mm-hmm. So there's that cyclical nature and there's ups and downs and you see a person who comes in, doesn't know probably, you know, what their body is telling them. Mm-hmm. They don't know the good ways to stay healthy to, I don't know, maybe eat right or exercise right or stretch properly or take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And throughout the course of their career uh, at, at a university, you see them mature into someone who understands their body, understands what they need to get ready, understands mm-hmm. when they're when they're aching or hurting, if it's an injury or if it's just I am I am you I've fully used up for the day, stuff like that. Like that's the beauty of of being in sports is seeing the transformation from someone who is raw, talented and naive to someone who gets it and is going to be a professional and yada 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 but i wanted to reiterate that because that's that's why we're really here we like seeing we like seeing the growth that's that's the true joy yeah and that's the best part and that's that's the fun part in two seeing you know like a freshman or an underclassman being in the athletic training room and you know if it was a time where you know there's an upperclassman in there too where the freshmen are like i don't want to be here like i don't want to be hurt yada 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 and I'm like, okay, do all of these things and you'll be back on the field and you won't have to come see me, but continue to do those things. And then, you know, they're back a couple months later and they're like, well, it's bothering me again. I was like, well, were you doing the things I told you to do? And he's like, well, no, it felt better. So I, I stopped. I'm like, <laughs> and then the, the upperclassman on the table next to him says, nah, you have to do all the things that Emma tells you to do and you have to keep doing them. Otherwise you'll end up in here all the time and so it's it's the growth and seeing an upperclassman tell a freshman you know you have to keep doing you know whatever to keep your body right and then the learning process comes from that they're not going to learn it the first time from what i tell them to do and i've i've figured that out and that's totally fine but they will definitely learn it from one of their one of their teammates telling them hey you gotta keep doing the stuff that that they tell you to do because it helps i love it it's it's great that's that's the yeah that's that's educational process it's it's a beautiful thing especially when it when it works and you can see it and you had a hand in it so yeah okay i've never taken an ice bath are they really as beneficial as they say do you prescribe ice baths to athletes maybe not in baseball or volleyball but i think in some sports you have to take ice baths well, one of the one of the sports I participated in as an athlete in high school was cross country, 
and I took plenty of ice baths and wow. I always liked it, but it's not something that I will prescribe per se. Like if an athlete wants to try it and thinks that they're going to like it, which they usually don't, <laughs> then they're, they're welcome to try it. Cause it's, it's not particularly, it's not something that's going to harm them or anything like that. So I'll let them, I'll let them go for it. And then they find out real quick that they don't like that or they don't like it during, but then, oh, my legs feel pretty good afterwards. You know, some of them have that experience and then they'll come in and do it. But particularly with baseball and volleyball, I don't have a lot of athletes coming into to ice baths too much. So why, why do cross country people, cross country runners, excuse me, why do they use ice baths after a training session? The, the theory is that it kind of helps their legs recover faster, but I think, you know, there are a ton of different ways to get your legs to recover, you know, and that's kind of recovery is a buzzword, I think, in, in a lot of ways. I think, you know, there's a place for dynamic stretching and dynamic movement and like cool down type shakeout runs or things like that. There's Normatec systems, which are like compression. Normatec, Norma. Yeah. <laughs> familiar uh, with that. Compression systems, which those are, those are great, you know, and that's, People like those better than ice baths because they're not soaking wet and they're not freezing cold. So Normatec gets a lot more, a lot more time and use than I think the ice baths do nowadays. I do recall many a road trip where players would come in to have a date with Norma. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, to sit in the room with the, with the Normatec, the compression recovery, especially the catchers. Yeah. Especially the catchers. Uh, like Eric Yang, Thomas Ron, those guys love the Normatec. And I, I, I totally get it. I, I, yeah. I understand it. But yeah, I never, I never taken an ice bath. Um, I don't know if I would, if you're not missing I'd ever, if I'd ever do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. To, to finish up, um, what are you looking forward to most in this, uh, this upcoming season? Maybe specific players that that you're watching out for, or just getting back to the business of college baseball number one yes getting back to the business of college baseball i miss you know the, the sounds and the atmosphere and, and all that stuff i had a pretty long injury report at the you know end of last season when we got cut short and a lot of guys having surgeries over the over the summer and in the spring and throughout you know the fall and I'm not going to name a lot of names because I'm not supposed to but I'm excited to see all of those guys you know the majority of them get to will get to be on the field and I'm super happy that they're healthy and they're ready to compete and I'm excited to get to watch them compete for the first time because they had been you know maybe injured since I'd got here and, and not gotten to see them play in a full in a full game or especially not a full season so I'm really looking forward to seeing all those dudes do their yeah. thing well, yeah, we're slowly uncovering some of these um, silver linings of the long layoff. And one of those is getting healthy. And sometimes yeah. sometimes in order to get healthy, you need to have surgery, especially in athletics. And it's especially nowadays with the, the technology that we have and the, and the knowledge that we have that like if you can take the time to take to have the surgery, you come out better than yeah. you did when you were healthy beforehand. So that's an exciting prospect because it's a full roster of, of healthy dudes, yep. as you said, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for the season as well. So let's see. 
I think that that's going to do it for for Emma Hoffman. Um, right. Any any shout outs that you want to give for folks in the training room before we sign off? Just, you know, uh, Leroy, my boss, Jackson, Kenna, Jesus, and Emma Connolly. Everybody does a fantastic job in there. I appreciate working with them every single day. And we're here to keep you guys healthy and COVID free. Fingers crossed. That's right. Emma, number one. Yes, sir. We didn't cover that at the start, but you are Emma one and then Emma Connolly is Emma two. We just yes. want to make sure that baseball comes first. Baseball comes first. <laughs> only, only by a, by about a three month window is, is how that happened. All right. Well, that's, that is Emma Hoffman, assistant athletic trainer for the uh, UCSB Gauchos crushing it in the training room. As always um, look forward to seeing you in the dugout at the field and uh, during the season. We're excited, Great, we're excited for it. So, um, Emma, Thanks, thank you Kevin. so much. All right, thank you to our presenting sponsor for this week's podcast, Wild Pitch Hot Sauce and Revolution Throwing. Thank you, Virgil Vasquez, for uh, coming on the pod when he did. And uh, good luck with the release. Hope a lot of people buy the hot sauce and enjoy it on their meals. And thank you to our interview, uh, Emma Hoffman. I can't, we can't thank her enough. The, the gauchos, the players and the coaches for all the support that she gives us, uh, and getting the gauchos on the field healthy and at full strength. So thank you, Emma. And thank you to all of the great athletic trainers out there. All right. So we're, we're one week closer to the start of the 2021 season. Over the next couple weeks, my focus on the podcast will be doing a variety of season previews. We'll have Coach Checkets on the podcast to start about the challenges of getting this season started and the challenges of getting a team on the field because there are a lot of gauchos. It's a a deep, deep roster, so he's going to have a tough task. And this is what I mean. He's going to have a tough task picking which guys to play on the field because there are so many talented players on this team. And again, there's only nine guys that can play uh, in any one game at the same time. So he's going to have him and the uh, and Coach Fontino and Coach Jones and new volunteer assistant Spencer Erdman are going to have uh, a tough task finding the best nine uh, to put on the field on any given day for the Gauchos. So we'll, we'll hear from checks and we'll do a, a schedule breakdown with Spencer and David uh, talk about the Gaucho opponents and what the Big West schedule will look like um, when we finally get that finalized. So that's the plan moving forward uh, before the start of the season, and we are anticipating it starting on schedule on February 19th. So lots to look forward to. It's going to be a great year. We're we're very optimistic, and uh, I am very optimistic, and I'm really excited uh, each and every day. It's uh, the the Super Bowl's done. Uh, and each and every day I get more and more excited. And one, one final note on the Super Bowl, because we had Jason Willow and McLean O'Connor on the podcast in the fall back in November. And at the end of the podcast, I asked them who their Super Bowl picks were. And, of course, McLean, being a Chiefs fan, picked the Chiefs, and Willow picked Tom Brady. And lo and behold, it was Tom Brady that won the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucks, And it was chiefs Bucks. So, in essence, they predicted... Uh, Super Bowl 55. Pretty cool. Anyways, have a great week. Look forward to seeing gauchos on the field. 